fact, we don't do it. We don't do it. You know whose image I mirror? My dad's. You know whose mirror I image? My mom's. You know whose mirror I image? My friends. You know whose mirror I image? Other people. But this is the design. This is the ideal. So this group of people who have come out of the Exodus now see this is God. God has created. He created good. He created me with a specific design. And we as a group of people, these Israelites, a, a million of them, have one goal, one task. And that is to mirror God's image wherever they go, whether it's the wilderness or whether it's the promised land. If you notice in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, this is the goal. This is the goal. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because, it rest, because God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The rest of chapter 2 explains how God put man in the Garden of Eden. So imagine this. God exodus these people. That would be an overwhelming experience, wouldn't it? He brought them to the Red Sea. Overwhelming experience. He brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. Overwhelming experience. And they have no reference point for who this God is. So now... God, through Moses, explains to them, here's the ideal order for the world. This is the God who designed it. This is how He designed it, good, with intrinsic value. And the goal of this design is rest. Now, would you agree that our lives are not at rest? This means yes. This means no. If you are at perfect rest, please come up to me afterwards and I will put a little unrest in your life. <laughs> the fact is, you don't need me to put that in your life because it's already there. It's in mine too. It's in all of our lives. This is the ideal. This is what life ought to be. So God is communicating through Moses to this group of people, you got to move on to the promised land because when you get to the promised land, this is what it will be like. Now let's stop there and say this. You and I are at unrest right now. And Jesus has said, all you who are heavy burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. And when we come to Christ and trust on Christ, we will be at spiritual rest even though we continue to live in a world full of unrest. Yes? But the promise of the gospel does not stop after I come to Christ. It actually has an, another, an additional element to it. And that is Christ will return. And when Christ returns, we will return to Eden. And that's our hope. That's the ideal it's the way it was, it's the way it will be, and so now this is the way that we live. We live in between of what was and what will be. Do you see? And the second word is the word rebellion. The word rebellion. 
This is in chapter 3, right after chapter 2. Imagine this. <laughs> it's like the high point, you know. One and two, great. Then we go to three and you go, wow. And what happens in three? This created group of people are in the right place. It's where God put them. They're at rest. But then they decide to take matters into their own hands. They no longer want to mirror the image of God to one another. They want to eat the fruit and become their own God. And what does God do to them? He exiles them out of the Garden of Eden. Yes? Do you remember years and years and years and years after Exodus, the group of people in the book of Joshua get into the land? Do you remember this? They're in the land. Like Adam and Eve, we're in the Garden of Eden. And after years and years and years of sin, which we call the book of First and Second Kings, what does God do to them? He exiles them out of the land. There is this cycle and pattern that happens over and over throughout the scriptures. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to that very thing. They sin against God. Now, one of the things that, as you well know, if you've been here very long, that I have emphasized over and over and over and over again to you is that you and I are sinners. And because we're sinners, we need a Savior. The Savior's name is Jesus. But through my eager explanation of the fact that we're sinners, I've left out a valuable piece of information for you, and I want to complete that for you today. Sin is not primarily how we are defined. Image bearers is the way that we're primarily defined. We are supposed to, obligated to, held accountable to bear His image. That is to love God and love our neighbor. We're required to do that. Now sin is seen in comparison with that original design and function. The fact that we lie or we steal or we commit adultery or we dishonor our parents, or we take God's name in vain, or we worship things in the creation rather than the Creator. All of these Ten Commandments, which is Exodus 20, after Exodus 19, yes? I hope this is making more sense to you now. All of those breaking of the Ten Commandments is essentially not bearing God's image. Now we have got in our minds that taking God's name in vain is saying, gee, you're scared to do it, aren't you? You're scared. D, right? You don't say GD, and I'm not advocating that you do. But what I am suggesting to you is that taking God's name in vain is much deeper than just the words you say. Taking God's name is actually the life you live. The very breath that's in your lungs right now is given to you. Your brain function and capacity is given to you. Your arms, your legs, your stomach, your digestive tract, everything about you is a gift. And you use the gift God has given you to bear His image or not to bear His image. Now we understand what sin is. Sin is misusing the life that we have. Sin is misusing the mind 
and the heart and the will and the body and the energy that we have to bear His image. So in the day that you eat this fruit, you'll be just like God. And she grasped for it. And she handed it to her derelict husband and he ate too. They're both guilty. And right after this happens, in Genesis chapter 3, right after this happens, you've got Genesis 4 and 5. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain, as we say in the South, killed Abel. It is the natural consequence of not loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What? Not loving your neighbor. The reason that we do not love our neighbor is because we do not love our God. We do not see Him as He's described in this ideal description in Genesis chapter 1. We take God's name in vain. We make Him something He's not. We lessen His standards and we say, God doesn't care if I do this or that or that or this. We do not trust in the Lord with all of our heart, but rather we lean on our own understanding. Our emotional conditioning, our environmental conditioning, our societal norms, we trust that instead of the Lord. And the result is that we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But if you remember, after Adam and Eve did this, did you notice what they did to each other? After they sinned against God, do you remember what they did? Adam, God says, why did you do this? The woman you gave me. Right? Who's he blaming? He's not blaming the woman. He's blaming God. The woman you gave me made me do this. Do you know who we blame in our lives? They don't go the way we want them to. They're not supposed to go the way you want them to. They're supposed to go the way the one that created it wants it to. But it doesn't go our way, and then who would we blame? God. Then he looks at Eve, and he says, Eve, why did you eat the fruit? Well, the serpent made me do it. I love that. Especially in Bible college. That's the thing that Bible college students say. The devil made me do it. Sanctimonious hypocrites. But we all are caught right now in a blame game. And we must recognize it today. It's not my wife's fault. It's not my kid's fault. It's not my church's fault. It's not my boss's fault. It's not my employee's fault. It's nobody's fault. Except mine. And this escalates to then taking it out on my neighbor. That's rebellion. Rebellion is what sin is. But it's rebellion against the ideal design for your life. Here's the third point. The third point is recreation. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, if you'll turn to chapter 6 very briefly, you see that God saved and God recreated the world through one man. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Was Noah a part of Genesis chapter 6 verse 5? 
every person, every intention is always evil? Doesn't that certainly include Noah? Yes. But here in verse 8, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. How? The same way you did. Grace. Noah is no different than any of these other people in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. Yet he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You go, oh, well, that's why he worked for it. Well, that's not how Moses revealed it. Moses said verse 8 before verse 9. Do you see this? In verse 8, he found favor. In verse 9, he walked with God. Are y'all following this? Verse 9 doesn't come before verse 8. He doesn't walk with God and find favor. But that's what you hear in modern pulpits today. You need to walk with God. You need to do right. You need to try harder. You need to be better. And then God will bless you. That's satanic. Because what you see in verse number 8 leads you to verse number 9. Namely, Noah found grace. How did he find it? The same way you found it. By an incredible operation of God and His Spirit. And because of that grace, then you walk with God. And so what does chapter 8 verse 1 say? Chapter 8 verse 1 says, God remembered Noah out of all these people that are sinful and every intention is set on evil. God remembers Noah. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says God blessed Noah. The blessing, the remembering, and the walking are all owed to grace. And out of this, God has started all over. Now what are these original people thinking? God punished the Egyptians like He punished the people in Noah's day. But he brought Noah through like he's brought us through. Why did he do that? Grace. So now, friends, I want to ask you. We hope and we look forward with eager anticipation to the end of the world when God will punish the world like he did in the days of Noah. And he will bring you and me through. Why? Because of grace. So the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible. Are you listening? Is based upon that process. In Genesis 6-9. through God is recreating the world. And he starts with Abraham. Then to Isaac. Then to Jacob. Then to Joseph and the brothers. And then Joshua, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Jesus. And through Jesus, all of you sitting here today. If any man is in Christ, or a woman, he or she is a new creation in Christ. This process began in Genesis 6. Through nine. At the right at the end of chapter eleven, he introduces us to this man named Abram. 
And the rest of the book of Genesis, just wetting your appetite for what you're going to read starting tomorrow, is about that man. The purpose of the genealogy in chapter 10, and then the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and at the end of chapter 11 is to introduce you to this man, Abraham. The forefather, the promised one to the people who received the book of Genesis. Now, how do we apply this today? Very briefly, let me give you three suggestions. Number one is that we need to adopt God's design as our perspective. If we don't know his design, we will never make his design our perspective on life. Do you remember what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6? He says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will do something for your path. He'll make it straight. The ideal has already been revealed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You don't have to question what the ideal life looks like. It's right there. When you adopt what is said there, and then you embrace Christ as the one who saves you from Genesis 3, then you can begin to trust him with all of your heart and wean yourself off of leaning on your own understanding. Here's the second thing. You need to view your work as worship. Oh, brother Kevin. What? Now, I'm certain there are so many things out of Genesis 1 through 11 that I could not address today, clearly. But one of the things that I want you to remember out of Genesis 1 through 11 is... Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. You are your brother's keeper. And one of the ways that we keep our brother is by working. One of the ways that we bear the image of God is by working. Most of us look at work incorrectly though. We say, oh, what, what's the least amount I can do and the maximum amount I can get out? That on? Right? That's because we're fallen. We're sinful. Instead of viewing work as a way to worship. Now what do you mean by that, Kevin? There's no hands in the air. There's no swaying. There's no instruments. I'm out here working. I'm sweating. I'm frustrated. How is this worship? Here's how it's worship. Because in your work, you bear His image. And that is worship. When you take him at his word and you look at your neighbor and say, how can I serve my neighbor? That's worship. When you take his word and you look at your neighbor and say, how can I advance my neighbor? That's worship. When you take his word and you look at your neighbor and say, how can I increase or improve 
the quality or quantity of my neighbor's life? How can I make other people's lives better than they are? That's worship. When you take His Word and you look out at the world, at your neighbor, and you say, how could I develop my neighbor, help my neighbor, uphold my neighbor, guide my neighbor, assist my neighbor, that is worship. Every business provides a product or a service that should make the neighbor's life better. If it doesn't, it'll go out of business quickly. Work is worship. Here's the last one. Trust that grace is the way of salvation and that grace is the way of the believer. Do you ever just want to take matters into your own hands? Maybe with a colleague or an employee or a spouse, you just kind of want to bridle it and, and, and force it and make it go a certain way. Yeah, so did Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit. But if we say with our mouths that God has given us grace, then my prayer is that that grace will so saturate your heart that that's how you'll deal with other people. May God bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for saving the Israelites out of Egypt. And... Thank you for raising up Moses and through Moses bringing them to Mount Sinai. And thank you for revealing to Moses the Torah. Now, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand what you have revealed. And that by understanding it, you will alter the way that we live in light of it. Bless these sweet ones today with your peace. Infuse their hearts with grace. Cause them to believe. And dismiss us now in great joy and hope. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.